Okay, back to Judges 7, if you would. In verse 1, we're told that when uh, uh, Gideon and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morel in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. And then he gives the reason, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. I grew up in a Baptist church which advertised themselves. I've told you this before. They advertised themselves as the church where everybody was somebody. Well, I I suppose they did that to make everyone feel like they were special. And I remember right before I stopped going, the pastor there once taught a series of messages titled, It's All About You. (laughs) And that that would, would be funny if it wasn't sad and pathetic. Anymore, it seems that the majority of the religious world has embraced this way of thinking. Uh, Come here, where everybody's somebody. Like that would be enticing or encouraging or bring messages. It's all about you. But uh, according to the Scriptures, it's actually just the opposite. Every true believer considers themselves to be nobody. They're nothing, they have nothing, and can do nothing to save themselves. Do you remember there in Judges chapter 6 when Gideon said this family was poor, that they were poorer than any of the tribes in Israel? That word poor there means weak. Weak. His family, he said, was the weakest, and he himself was the weakest in his family. Salvation is not at all about is not about us. Salvation is not at all about us. It's not about what we do for God, it's about what God has done for us. We say that all the time, but it's so true. A dead man or woman can't do anything. And that's what we are by nature. We're spiritually dead. We have no life in us. And when men and women say things like, I gave Jesus my heart and I made Jesus my Lord or I let go and I let God or I got saved. In reality, what they're saying is, mine own hand hath saved me. Ever since mankind sinned, men and women have themselves endeavored to do something to save themselves. Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. The Scripture is very specific. It says they sewed fig leaves together. They had been naked since they'd been created and sin came into the world and all of a sudden they saw they were naked 
And what did they do? They sold fig leaves together to cover themselves. The Scripture says they made themselves aprons. They made themselves a covering. That's what an apron is. You ladies put on aprons in the kitchen to cook. You're covering yourself. You don't want to get grease or anything on your clothes. That's what an apron is. It's a covering. They sold and they made aprons for themselves. And God wouldn't have it. God will not accept the covering that we make for ourselves. It's. I was thinking today, when the Lord cursed that fig tree, that the, he said no fruit will ever grow from that tree. And no fruit will ever grow from man's self-professed righteousness of a fig leaf covering. Cain, the firstborn of our first parents, found this out the hard way. He brought the best his hands could bring, didn't he? I've often said I... I would have loved to have seen the tomatoes or whatever it was that he brought. I'm sure they were just top-notch. He was a tiller of the ground, the Scripture says. He was a master gardener. But God didn't have any respect to Cain's offering. He had no acceptance. That's what the word respect means. He didn't accept it. He had no regard for his offering. God accepted the offering of Abel, which was the sacrifice of the lamb and the shedding of blood of a lamb, which pictured the Lord Jesus Christ. And Cain was angry and jealous because God accepted his brother's sacrifice and not his. And God's not going to accept the work of any man's hands. My hand and your hand cannot save us. Now tonight we have the story, the account of God cutting down the size of Gideon's army from, as we've already noted, from 32,000 to just 300 soldiers to battle against 100,000. Now when Israel was out, was at 32,000, when their army numbered 32,000, they were already outnumbered four to one. And God said, it's too many, too many. We're, we're, we're outmanned by four to one now. And when it was cut to 10,000, it was 33 to one. They were outnumbered. And then when it was cut to 300, that's 333 to one. The Lord's going to see to it that Gideon, everyone in Israel, everyone among the Midianites, and every man and woman whom God gives eyes to see that salvation deliverance is of the Lord. None are going to be able to argue that. (laughs) Is that your argument? Is salvation of the Lord or is it not? Salvation with man is impossible. Remember when the rich young ruler came to the Lord Jesus and said, what good thing must I do to be saved? And the Lord told him to keep the commandments. He said, well, all those I've done. He met him where he was. And he said, well, then go and give all you have to the poor. And he, he was a wealthy young man. And he went away sad. And the Lord Jesus said, and the disciples said, how then can anybody be saved? And the Lord said, with men it's impossible. But with God, 
all things are possible. God told Gideon that there are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. And, and even being outnumbered four to one, he said, you're going to vaunt. And that word means you're going to take pride. You're going to take glory. You're going to think of yourselves too highly. And you're going to say, mine own hand hath saved me. Even with 10,000 and outnumbered 33 to one, it'll be the same response from the Lord. Too many, too many. And then in verse four, the Lord still claims too many and it's reduced to 300. And now outnumbered 333 to one, all are going to know that I, the Lord, delivered you out of the hand of the Midianites. Not going to be any doubt about it. The Lord makes this great truth obvious throughout the Scriptures. That's what the Lord told Joshua. Joshua 24.11, the Lord said, and you went over Jordan and you came into Jericho and the men of Jericho fought against you and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and I delivered them into your hand. I did. I did. Well, they took Jericho by just walking around the city and blowing a trumpet and shouting. God's the one that tore those walls down. And that's what the Lord reminded Israel just in, as we saw last week or the week before in Judges chapter 6, verse 9. He said, And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. It was God that did that. The Israelites didn't have anything to do with those plagues, God sent them. And he said, and out of the hand of, of all that oppressed you, and I drave, drave them or drove them out from before you, and I gave you their land. I did, God said. That's the tenor or the theme of the whole Bible. What do we do? We do the sinning. God does the saving. We get ourselves into bondage by our own disobedience, and then God must deliver us because we ourselves can't. It was this, as we've seen so vividly in these studies of judges. The Lord would send a judge and deliver them. The judge would die. They'd fall right back into idolatry and, and bondage, and they'd be under oppression again. And the Lord, they'd cry unto the Lord and the Lord would send another judge, same thing, over and over and over again. And because of this, there's nothing for man to glory in. There's nothing that you and I can take credit for except our sin. God said you're outnumbered four to one. That's too many. It won't take that many, so we need to cut the number. And in verse 3, now therefore go... Two, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And the return of the people, twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And when the people gathered at the well of Herod, it was interesting to find out there to see that that name Herod means fountain of trembling. Fear and trembling is what that place means. And then now we see in verse 3 why it's called that. or it, it was there that God gathered them. And because of the size of the armies, Israel was 
of the Midianites, Israel was in fear, 100,000. And they're going, you know, there's just about 30,000 of us and they got 100,000. And the Lord said, that's too many. <laughs> too many of them? No, too many of us. Then left 10,000 and verse 4, God said, still too many. You know, that goes against all the thoughts of the art of war. The more troops, the better, especially when you're already at such a disadvantage. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. And my, my, I was thinking today, uh, many of you know Doc Stone. Doc now worships at Lantana Grace Church where Donnie Bell pastors. And Doc um, played on the Grand Ole Opry for seven or eight years and uh, we went to church together in 1986 down in Franklin, Tennessee. And Doc, knowing that I was a loved music and played music, he said that the saying among professional musicians was always less is more. Um, in other words, if everyone just played their part in a group or in a recording session played their parts simply when all the parts were played together. Each part complemented the other. And you would easily understand the words and the message of the song. Less is more. Uh, kind of like what Brother Mahan used to tell those young men in his preacher's class. He said, KISS, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. That is a good rule of thumb. Teresa reminds me of that occasionally. Really, and and I need to be reminded of it. Keep it simple, stupid. Friends, with God, less is always more. And the reason God keeps cutting this number is this. If Israel won the victory with the larger number, they would not credit God for the victory. They would credit themselves. If God left their army at 32,000, they'd credit the size of their army for the victory. They would have claimed that their victory was by the power of their might. Why, look what we did with 32,000 against 100,000. And they would vaunt. They would boast. They would glorify themselves and say, Mine own hand hath saved me. Why do men endeavor to rob God of the glory that belongs to only Him? The character of man by nature is to take credit for the work of God. And I know a lot of folks think that the preaching that's preached in most circles today is, is innocent at bed. Well, they just don't know better. But it's much more serious than what you think. Oh, to say, mine own hand hath saved me is to say that God hadn't. It's to say that I did something in order to be saved. And friends, God will not share His glory with another. Many are going to stand on the day of judgment and do just that. They're going to take the credit for what God has done. Lord, Lord, haven't we done many wonderful works? None of us are capable of doing a wonderful work. None of us. Man can only work out what God has worked in. When the Lord said, work out your own 
uh, salvation with fear and trembling. He went on to say, it's God in you that worketh. We can't work out what God hadn't worked within us. It takes the sovereign grace of God to bring a man or a woman to the place where they give God all the glory for the great things that He has done. Only a child of God sees that the Bible gives no grounds on which a man can glory in himself. And man in his depravity is delusional if he thinks that he deserves some kind of credit or acknowledging in his in the redemption of his soul. To seek such glory for ourselves, it's not just merely error. Not just error and thought. It's a crime against God. God grants salvation by His power, His mercy and grace alone. And it can never be attributed to anyone but Him. Self-glory is to attack God. The chief attribute of depravity is pride. It's the first thing on the a list of things that God hates. Pride. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. It, according to the Psalms, it precedes shame and it comes with contention. Nothing good about it. The reason the Lord kept reducing the size of Israel's army was to keep them from glorying in themselves. It's the same today. Christ must increase, we must decrease. That's what... Uh, well, folks today believe their strength in numbers. I, I, they just do. I've heard men and women alike say of multitudes and majority in number, not that many people can be wrong. There must be something to what they say and what they believe because not that many people could be wrong. Um, the same ones don't believe that the small minority can be right. Well, that little handful, that little group over there, they can't know anything. There wouldn't be so few of them if they did. And that kind of thinking actually goes against the teaching of Scripture. Because the Bible says, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be that find it. And the Bible also says straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. And few, few there be that find it. So I wouldn't put any stock in numbers. The Scriptures say, who hath despised the day of small things. It was David, a small shepherd boy. A young boy that defeated the giant Goliath. It was a single prophet of God named Elijah who put to shame and killed the 450 prophets of Baal. It was Abraham and 318 men that chased down and defeated the four kings of the plain to rescue his nephew Lot and those of Sodom that had been captured and all their goods taken. 
Abraham and 318 men. Immediately comes to mind the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. <laughs> and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1.25 Friends, God's grace is sufficient. It says, For His strength is made perfect when and how? In our weakness. In our weakness. <laughs> Not in our numbers, but in our weakness. Not in our strength, but in our weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it to you and I'll make some comments as I read the verse. For though He, Christ, was crucified through weakness, and He's talking about the nature that Christ assumed. He was tempted in all things like we are with the exception of sin. He says, yet He liveth by the power of God. That's how we live, by the power of God. He was raised from the dead by divine power. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. He reigns at the right hand of God in power. And He has power over all flesh. And Paul went on and wrote, for we, are, for we also are weak in Him. You see, like Christ and for His sake, we are subject to infirmities and reproaches and persecutions and distresses. We're uh, humiliation, being dead with Christ and crucified with Him. And then Paul goes on to say, but we shall live with Him by the power of God towards you. We who are mortal are going to be raised immortal. Our corruption, these dying bodies are going to put on incorruption and our mortality will soon be immortality and we'll live forever with Christ. That's all by the power of God. For if we suffer with Christ, we shall live and reign with Him and be glorified together with Him. Isn't that good news? Small things, men don't care much for them. Um, I remember a time you see a penny on the ground, you'd bend down and pick it up. Most people today won't even bend over and pick up a penny. Small things. Small things. Men associate the miraculous with the multitudes. The destruction of mankind was by one man, Adam. The salvation of God's elect was by one man. That man was the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, this it was just a small band of people that were said to have turned the world upside down. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Brother Tim wrote in his commentary, today salvation has been reduced to a decision, a walk down an aisle, and a simple plan. That's true. That's true. John Gill said men translate numbers to power. Only a few look to Christ's death on the cross as the means and the reason for salvation and righteousness and justification and sanctification and redemption. I heard a man say not long ago, I don't preach those things anymore because people aren't much interested in them. And you ought to get out of preaching. 
You're not preaching anyway if you're not preaching those things. Now verse 4 again, And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down into the water, and I'll try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, and the same shall go with thee. And whomsoever I say, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people into the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth up the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth. You've seen a dog at a bowl. He just... Laps up the water with his tongue. He said, Every one that lappeth up the water with his tongue is a dog lappeth. Him thou shalt set by himself. And likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. Or in other words, and I've done this very often, you get hand in your, your water in your hand and you drink it like this. But you're, you're standing up and you're looking out. And maybe you're motivated by fear or something else. But this was the distinction that God made. It was God that made this distinction. He said, set those that do this, drink water this way here, and set these here. And the Lord said unto Gideon, verse 7, by the 300 men that lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand and let all the other people go every man into his place. Uh, Brother Paul Hibbs called me this afternoon to ask what our text was tonight. Him and Anna listen when they aren't able to be here. And he likes to read the, the verses before him. I gave him the verses and I told him what the story was about. About the Lord using 300 men in Gideon's army to defeat 100,000 Midianites. And Paul said, it wasn't 300 men that defeated them, was it? And I said, no, Paul, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. And He could have done it with three if He had so chosen. It was their God who delivered them. That's always been the case. That's the lesson here tonight. The mass multitudes today think way too little of God and way too highly of themselves. I had someone tell me a few years back that the message of Christ and Him crucified was important, but that I needed to move on to the deeper things of God. you telling me that God becoming a man? Dying in my room instead? Shedding His blood to cover my sin is not deep? And what the man meant was the gift of tongues, the gifts of healing, because I knew, know how he believed, the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of interpretation. You know, I once believed that I had those gifts. That might shock you, but that's the honest truth. And I practiced them. I guess that'd be the way to say it. I sure didn't, uh, I sure didn't have them down. But I, I, I did them openly, so I'm not a novice concerning these things. I know a little bit about what I'm talking about here. But they're not the deeper things of God, far from it. I'm not sure they're the things of God at all. The Scripture says they've ceased. No, I am sure they're not the things of God. And one day those who are convinced that I am wrong are going to find out for themselves. 
And I feel strongly enough about these things based upon the Scripture alone to say that if I'm wrong, then hell is what I deserve and what I should experience. But I have assurance and confidence in what Christ has done for me that I don't lose any sleep over being ashamed. I don't. I rest at night. I rest in the day. I'm resting right now in the fact that Christ has done for me what I could never do for myself. Is there more to life eternal than just than preaching Christ? Is there more to salvation than resting in Christ's finished work? Leaving men and women with something to do? It leaves a righteousness that's got to be worked out and a holiness to be improved upon. And if that's the case, then I don't want to be right. No man can save my own hand has saved me. Can't do it. You'll go to hell thinking it, but it's not true. All glory goes to God. All of it. He'll not share it with another because man cannot save himself. Now, I want to turn you to one place before we finish, and that's Isaiah chapter 42. And I want to just begin in verse 5 and just read three or four verses here. Turn there with me, Isaiah 42. This ought to get our attention because verse 5 begins, Thus saith God the Lord. It's funny how when E.F. Hutton talks, men listen, but when God does, nobody seems to want to. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. That's who this is. That's who's speaking here. That ought to get your attention. I, the Lord, hath called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord. That's my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. Now just a quick little review of what we just read. God created the heavens and stretched them out. God spread forth the earth. God did that. You know, you look, we look at this creation, the stars in the sky at night, the sun in the day, the trees, the animal life, the flowers. And we can't help but think, what a God. Amen. He just spoke these things into existence. God created man and He breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. And when a man dies, God takes the breath from him. It's the Lord that killeth. It's the, it's the Lord that, that maketh alive. The Lord does all these things. It's the Lord that calls His people in righteousness. It's the Lord that holds their hand and keeps them. It's the Lord who makes a covenant with us. 
It's the Lord that gives light to the Gentiles like you and I so that we might see. It's the Lord who gives sight to blind eyes. It's the Lord that, that delivers us from our bondage. And the God who does all these things says plainly and simply, and He proves it from every page in the Scriptures, that He is the Lord. And that is His name. And His glory He will not give to another. For us to say that we add one thing to our salvation is to try to strip God of His glory. It's a serious, serious matter. You're not going to share His glory with man's man-made graven images. And that doesn't have to be a stump that you carve with a chainsaw or a, something you mold, a piece of clay you mold with your hand. That can be the graven image that you created right here in your mind. It's immoral for someone to take credit for something that he or she didn't do. And I can just picture old Herod wearing his royal robes, sitting on his throne, and he delivers a public address to the people, and they shouted, This is the voice of God, not the voice of a man. And he sat there in all his pomp and didn't say a word, and he was immediately eaten up with worms, and he died. Why? Because God will not share or give His glory to another. Like Lucifer right before his fall, he said, I will ascend. I'll make my throne above the throne of God. I'll do this. I'll do that. God said, no, you won't. No, sir, you will not. He won't give His glory to another. He's the blessed and only ruler, the only potentate. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He alone is immortal and He lives in an unapproachable light. And to Him be honor and glory forever and ever. Well, His glory is so bright that even heaven's mightiest angels cannot look fully upon Him. There's no boasting in His presence. One who brags on what He's done, is doing, or is going to do for God stands on dangerous ground. In John 17, let me leave you with this. In John 17, in the Lord's glorious high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus noted three things in particular concerning the glory of God His Father. And you can look at it sometime in your convenience, but He... First, he prays that the Father would give him glory. And secondly, he laid claim to a previous glory that was his before the world began. And then thirdly, our Lord asserts that his glory was that of the Father's. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, God's not going to give his glory to another. So this is proof that Jesus Christ, who shared in the divine glory, is God. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling. And He did so, the Scripture says, not according to our works, but according to what? His own purpose and grace which was in us in Christ Jesus before the world began. For us in Christ Jesus. 
There are too many in this world today that say, my own hand, that saved me. Men and women are vaunting themselves against God. They're boasting. They're bragging. They're flaunting the glory that belongs to God alone. And in the end, all their words are nothing but vain glory. They'll hear these words from the Lord Himself. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, bragging and boasting in what you do for God is not just simply error, it's a work of iniquity. Yes, sir. The issue is what God's done for us, not what we've done for God. Have you ever had someone ask you, well, what's God doing in your life? I don't know what God's doing. If I'm one of His, I know whatever He's doing is for my good. It's for His glory. I don't know what God is doing. I only know that what that He's doing whatsoever He's pleased. I do know that. I don't know what God is doing. I only know that what God has done. Because the work of salvation for His people is finished. And He tells us so. When do we rest? When our work's finished. Work's finished. Rest. Well, may God be pleased to keep us from doing such nonsense for His glory, our good, and for the Lord Jesus' sake.